We came down to chapter 40 of, uh, Psalm, of the Psalms last week, and I want to pick it up there. I kind of wanted to finish, but I got on some things that took a longer time, and I will not apologize for that because I think they were needed in terms of our responsibilities one to another and the family that God wants us to build as part of the same body and all fitting together well. Uh, that, of course, is New Testament teaching as well, and I did entitle this series uh, Psalms and the New Testament Church because the message certainly all through this book is a prophetic message for us as well as a review of history and the kind of circumstances that people went through in every age since Adam and Eve were. And the dynamics of each age are essentially the same. So when we read back here of these things, they are ultimately applicable to us because human experience, unfortunately, (laughs) continues in the same ruts, the same difficulties, the same trials and troubles, no matter what age we're in. It is our relationship with God and our relationship with people wherein we have trouble. The Ten Commandments are, first of all, about our relationship with God, and secondarily, our relationship with mankind. And those are the areas that we have the greatest difficulty in. It has always been that way. And now, in modern times, they would like you to believe that the law of done is God is done away, And how can you do away with the law of God and still have a relationship with Him and the people He's created? Those rules that are made to regulate relationships and societies are set aside. And is it any wonder we have the confusion and frustration and instability we have in the world today? But it has been a consistent problem. Now, scholars have said that The first book of the Psalms through chapter 41 can be related well to the book of Genesis. And I think that there is much to say there, uh, and we've covered quite a bit of that. But I want to point out as we get down to Psalm 41, that's where I left off. I, I think I said 40, but I meant 41. We'll find that there is a summary here of this first book that is much like Genesis 49. Genesis shows the difficulties of man uh, from creation until the flood, the destruction there. Then it shows the start over of human civilizations thereafter, with Nimrod building cities and city-states in the land of Mesopotamia, in the Near East, Middle East, and the difficulties that were there, and then God had to divide and confuse the language and scatter people over the earth because they couldn't get along with God and man. Then he raised up one man, Abraham, who in a sense is a type of the Father in heaven, along with his son Isaac, whom he asked to have sacrificed. So we have that type of Abraham and Isaac, of the Father and the Son. After Isaac, who was a central figure in his lifetime... One of his sons, Jacob, had twelve sons. And there began a march toward the 144,000 of the book of Revelation 
chapter 7 and 14. Because out of those twelve sons would come twelve tribes. And of the 144,000, he says he would take 12,000 of each tribe for a total of 144,000 first fruits, and says clearly these are the first fruits. Now we covered that it did not have to be those who were of Israelite blood, because in the New Testament, Christ made it very clear, and Paul preached it afterward, that the Gentiles were grafted in, and that people then would be spiritually placed within one of those tribes, no matter what their physical blood might happen to be. There are people who would argue that, but I think it can be very clearly shown in Scripture. So, we are at the tail end of that now, because it has been committed to us, we have been commissioned, to finish the job, which began way back then, of rounding out the numbers of the 144,000. God raised up a work in this end time to choose a lot of, I mean, to call a lot of people. And now we are getting down to the point that, as in Nimrod's day, confusion and separation and scattering has again occurred with the people of God. Now that scattering and division and confusion is about to hit the earth as well once this economic system implodes and collapses and wars begin in earnest. So what has happened before is happening again. And we are the last act on this stage. So we need to take heed and think seriously about what God has asked to be done here at the end. We're here to complete a process begun clear back in Genesis and reviewed in this first book of the Psalms because even as Adam and Eve and Noah and those who followed them in the book of Genesis had difficulties and problems, so within David's reign and Solomon's and in the time of the kings of Israel, they had problems as well. So all these eras, Genesis, we're going to get into Exodus very shortly, and you'll see that this applies there as well, the times of Israel, the times of the New Testament church, in which God began another calling, and they had difficulties and problems, and it imploded then. Then it was quiet through the Middle Ages, and God started up again here in the end to finish things. So it's not where you start, but where you end that counts. And that puts us in a position, brethren, and I think we need to understand this, that to do the finish work puts a responsibility and an opportunity before us that carries unbelievable weight, and we must rise to the challenge. Now, it is very easy for us to look back and say, I'm no Abraham, I'm no Moses, I'm no David, I'm no Paul or James or Peter or John or Jude. No, we're not. And to even mention any of us in that same breath 
is almost like a bizarre joke to us because we've seen the works of those people and their attitudes and their relationship with God. And yet, we see that they all had problems in their lives. We see that they struggled to be faithful and strong and true and courageous and so on. They failed at times. So, yes, they're mentioned in the Hebrews 11 as those who have succeeded and will be there to help establish God's kingdom on the earth. But the first will be last, and the last will be first. And God is calling us also, as the last ones in this process, to be standing right up there at the first resurrection and to be ready to be the first rulers of the new world that is coming. He wants us to take our place with Abraham, with Moses, with David. He wants us to rise to that challenge and become what they were. It may sound strange to put us in that context because we know how weak and pitiful and abject we are. Or at least I hope we do. We have to rise above the situation. We have to become what God wants us to be. We need to come to the point, ultimately, that it isn't a joke anymore. That we will have finished the course and fought the good fight and prepared ourselves to be a part of the bride of Christ. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob will be part of that bride. Moses will. Rahab will. And so will you. So it's a challenge. And David grappled with that challenge, even as those, as his predecessors did, and as those since have. Paul cataloged his struggle against his nature, didn't he? He told us about it, about how he couldn't do what he wanted to do and the things he didn't want to do, he did. So he had the same struggle. And I suspect that Paul, if you read him a list of these Old Testament luminaries, would have said, don't put me in the same breath as Abraham and Moses, because he recounts to us his troubles and struggles. So there's nothing new under the sun. We simply have to rise to the challenge. Now let's notice here in chapter 41 that we concluded chapter 40 last week saying, I am poor and needy, yet the eternal thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. So even as he in that day looked for deliverance from God from his troubles, here we are in the same boat today. And he said, I am poor and needy. Now, we do not need to be poor in spirit in the sense of not having much, but poor in the human spirit, as Christ was relating, not being full of vanity and ego and self, but to be filled with his spirit Poor in human spirit, but rich in the Spirit of God, is what Christ was implying there. So he opens chapter 41, having 
talked about his own poverty and need, and I think he's not speaking there of physical wealth, but he's speaking of mental, emotional, and spiritual needs. Opens 41, carrying that thought down. Blessed is he that considers the poor. Now he's asking for God's consideration heretofore. And now he's also saying that we need to take care of those who are poor. And again, this could mean physically poor. It could mean poor in situation, poor in uh, spiritual growth, uh, emotional situations that are full of poverty, difficulty. In other words, people who have needs and troubles, no matter what it is. And does not he tell us that we will be judged by how we take care of others? And he says, not just your friends, but your enemies. We are to carry it beyond taking care of those we would like. We are to take it to those we don't like. And we are to take it to those who are opposed to us and who are enemies and treat them with love and with respect. And I don't mean a sarcastic or a look down upon, or I will condescend to take care of you in spite of you, because I know that I am certainly above you in every way, but uh, I will look down and take care of you anyway. No, it has to be genuine and from the heart. From, from our friends, clear to those who would be our enemies. Pretty wide gamut, isn't it? Everybody. It means everybody. Anybody who has need of any kind. The eternal will deliver him in time of trouble. So God says if we take care of those who are around us, who might have any kind of need, however they might be poor, we will be taken care of in time of trouble. And of course, that is what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're merciful and forgiving and loving, Toward everyone, even your enemies, I will take care of you. So nothing has changed, has it? Christ was saying and teaching the very same thing that is brought out right here. The Eternal will preserve him and keep him alive. Now we are this end time generation. Matthew 24 says, Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. That I might preserve you alive in a place that you go to where you will be safe. So here we see the New Testament church clearly within these words. And the conditions are the same there as they are here. And he shall be blessed upon the earth, and, will, and you will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. God will make a separation and a difference, he says. The eternal will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. You will make all his bed in his sickness. So even though we have trouble... Trials, difficulties, sicknesses of various kinds, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. If we do our part with those around us, He will protect us and take care of us. With no differentiation, I can't talk, without respect of persons, but with anyone. And God is not a respecter of persons either. Even you, even me, He will take care of if we fulfill the conditions that He's laying out here.
So this is history. It was the real live day in David's time when this was written. It was also about Christ and his time. And it is now very alive for us today. Verse 4, I said, Eternal, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Anybody, any time in history, could have said that. So it's prophetic from David's standpoint. My enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die and his name perish? There are those who wish we would die and disappear from the face of the earth. And if he come to see me, he speaks vanity. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes abroad, he tells it. In other words, sometimes it's two-faced. It's one thing to your face, it's another behind your back. All that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. Well, David had the same situation then that we do today. People feared his power as king, and yet they whispered behind his back. Conspiracies are not anything new. They've gone on throughout history. Verse 8, an evil disease, say they, cleaves fast to him. And now that he lies, or lays down, he shall rise up no more. So, there are those who will tell, say about us, we have an evil disease, it's that religion. I know somebody right now who is persecuting us, telling us we need to get away from a lot of the things we believe, and believe the way he believes. And the persecution I've received in some emails has been pretty strong. We need to give up the Sabbath. We need to give up thinking we're the true church of God on the face of the earth. And on and on and on it goes. So we are relegated to the area of the spiritually diseased. I don't think so. Oh yeah, we certainly have a certain amount of spiritual disease. We need to, to be healed. There's no doubt of that, but not in the way that it's being put, and it isn't put in a positive way, at least as I read it. Yes, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, that could be a direct reference to Christ himself and Judas betraying him. He saw his heels departing to go betray him to the Roman soldiers. Go to Obadiah 7, and we see that Jacob's brother Esau betrayed him. And Obadiah is a prophecy of this end time in which Esau finally will rise above Jacob. They have already done it in the financial world, and they are about to collapse that system and went out over us. And along with it is going to come a military defeat, and the woman, Babylon the Great, Israel, who has become that adulterous woman, is going to be destroyed. So, our own brother Esau has lifted up his heel against us, and it's about to drop on us. If you've been reading the news lately, you should see it coming. If you're aware at all of prophecy and of what's going on in the world, it's not too hard to put this together. But you, O Eternal, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may requite them. Even in the church, 
We saw those who were of Edomite background and ancestry, as at least my research showed, who took the church away, who helped destroy it, confuse it, and scatter it. So this is very real to you and me. And now we are in a position where we are seeking to overcome the situation and to survive. So we're pleading for God's mercy and Him to raise us up that I may requite them. By this I know that you favor me because my enemy does not triumph over me. So even we here, though we are a part of the spewing out, are still faithful. We're still working at obeying and serving God. And He is working at preserving us as we are working toward serving and obeying Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped, which we were not doing before. So we are still here able to cry out and to pray and to plead. Many are not in that position anymore. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. So here is a prophecy of the future where David understood, as did Christ, that eternal life was ahead, that blessing would come forever once the trials, troubles, and tribulations of human existence that they faced were over. Blessed be the eternal God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen, or so be it and so be it. End of that particular book. Now I want to draw a parallel for a moment here between this and Genesis 49. Because through all the trials, troubles, and tribulations that the budding nation of Israel went through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's time, and all those people had difficulties. Abraham, though chosen of God and obedient to God through his life, still had to have faith built, tested, tried, so that God could eventually say, Now I know that you will give your son Isaac, even as I will give my son who would become the Christ. He put him on that same level of trial and tribulation that he himself would endure in sending Christ to this earth to die and risking, to some degree, the possibility that he could sin and might and he would lose his son forever even as Abraham could have lost Isaac there if intervention had not occurred. And I'll guarantee you that if God the Father had not intervened in and helped Christ when he was on this earth, he would have sinned. If not for the Father, he would have sinned. That is why he went to the Father and prayed continually and depended upon his Father. Because he said, of myself I am nothing and I can do nothing. It is the Father who does it. Well, he had given up his immortality. He had given up the character that he had as a spirit being and became a man. With every drive, with every temptation known to man. Period. And he would have given in 
had he not constantly looked to the Father. So it was the intervention of the Father that made him able to do what he did. Now, I don't say that to demean him at all or to put him down. What he did was something no one since or before has ever accomplished. No one has ever looked to the Father in the same way either. We have never gotten as close to our Father in heaven as he stayed, because that was his salvation. And in doing that, when he died, the veil of the temple was opened that we might ourselves approach the Father directly, each and every one of us, with our individual prayers, rather than having to have a high priest go in for us once a year. What an incredible thing that is, that that access, which had never been before, was granted to New Testament Christians. And how we take it for granted and do not go to him as often and as, as uh, diligently as we need to. But we have the opportunity. Now, Genesis 49 goes through and shows that though in spite of all the troubles and so on, that uh, Jacob... Told, or Isaac told his sons, no, I guess Jacob it was, because he had the twelve sons. No, Isaac had twelve sons. Jacob had, I'm getting myself all mixed up, I know the story well. I can't even spit it out right. But the twelve sons were given uh, a prophecy of what would happen to them in the latter days. And that has come to pass. We are the most blessed nation on earth, and there is great evidence that we are Ephraim. I won't go into that again today. I will again sometime in the future. But the blessings and the things that would not be good or right about those tribes, those men in the end time days, were written down for a prophetic prophecy of the future. So here, and that's at the end of the book of Genesis. And in this case... He says, we had trouble, we had difficulties, we looked to God, and as for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. And that promise was that Israel would always be, would never fail, and would be here at the end time, and what would befall us at the end time. So this particular first book of the Psalms, closes with essentially the same thought that we had in Genesis 49. That in David's day, he would be upheld, and in our day, we also will be upheld. And this thing will see through to the finish and the climax, and 12,000 of each tribe will be designated to be the bride of Christ at that time. So that finishes then the first book, which had a lot to do with the trials, troubles, tribulations of David, of all ages in the past, of the early New Testament church, and of us here at the end. So the book of Genesis, or the beginning, has been repeated over and over through man's history. And you can fit it into any of man's experiences. Man departed from God, they needed leadership out of it. And God promised, if you'll do what I say, 
Things will go good for you. So then we come to the second book of the Psalms, beginning in chapter 42 and ending in chapter, or through chapter 72. This has been equated to the book of Exodus, <coughs> because what happened? As in Genesis, man had trouble with God and with each other, and had to be destroyed, had to be divided, confused, had to go into slavery of various types, and then God provided some leadership to show a better way and promises for the future. Here in the book of Exodus, you have the same thing. God had caused Israel, Jacob, to go down into Egypt with his sons. Yes, he had twelve. I'll get the story straight here. Uh, and there they stayed, and things got... They, they were okay at first. And then they got more enmeshed in the Egyptian or Mitzrayim culture and finally wound up as absolute bond slaves to the system. Then they needed deliverance. We came into this country when God allowed it again after generations of it sitting idle and having its rest. We were allowed to come here and things were beautiful. There was no pollution. There was every natural resource we could possibly need. This land had everything you could possibly need, as Deuteronomy says it would have. And over a period of time, there are those who have taken charge, and they began at the very beginning to want to rule their way. And our system was set up in Babylonian and Egyptian parameters. Our capital city was set up that way, though it is not part of the Union of States. So it was there at the very beginning. And over time, it has gotten worse and worse and worse. And those freedoms that we were supposedly guaranteed have been taken away. And we have now become slaves to corporatocracy, which is what rules America today. The great corporations control the politicians, pay them to do what is wanted, they want, and they rule the big banks and corporations. And we are the little pawns and peasants who work for the corporations. Just as in Exodus, the people were frustrated. And then, when they would want to be delivered, what happened? The straw was taken away. The bondage became greater. Now we have people who are fighting against the system today, or beginning to, and they are having more and more of their freedoms taken away. The bondage is getting tighter and tighter. And if leadership shows up, they will try to squelch it, even as Pharaoh did. In the church, if God provides leadership to try to lead His people, the end-time church, out of trouble, it will not be acceptable. Just as Moses' leadership was not acceptable to the Israelites. So this second book, showing Exodus, also fits very well with our circumstance. We also see within it Christ's suffering as we did in the first book. 
and that being due to man's intransigence and sin. So he took our sin upon him, and he became a captive even as we are captive, because we are captive to Satan's system today. And if God provides leadership to take his people out of it, what is Satan going to do? He will hate it. He will fight it. He will not let my people go, as Moses termed it. Let my people go. And the world will have none of it. And eventually, after having prayed to be accounted worthy, God will let his people go. So let's pick it up with those thoughts in mind. As the heart pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after you, O God. When we find ourselves in this end time scenario, God wants us to look to him like a deer who has not had water pants and thirsts for a brook. That is the emotion, that is the way that we are to go about seeking God under these circumstances. And if we are not yet in the attitude where we seek God in this fashion, things will get worse and we will get thirstier and thirstier until we begin to seek Him in this fashion. We were laid a sin, lackadaisical, and did not search for Him in this fashion, and we were spewed out of His mouth because we were neither hot nor cold. Now, He wants us to heat up like the deer wanting cool water and not having it. And He is not going to let up until that happens. Now, He heard the murmuring of Israel in Egypt, but He let it go on for 430 years. Well, the murmuring didn't start right away because things weren't that bad, but they got worse and worse. And the murmur got louder. And then God sent Moses, and then they went through trouble. And you know, the trouble got worse and worse. And then plagues even came on Mitzrayim, and they came on Israel as well. And things just got worse and worse. And finally, God made a difference and began to deliver. So He wants us to turn with our whole heart, even as He wanted Israel to turn at that time with their whole heart. Now, did they? And what was their experience? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall come and appear, or when shall I come and appear before God? When will this relationship tighten up where I can have this closeness with Him? My tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? So we're still going through the same things the people in this world are, aren't we? We're out here in the desert. We still have to find jobs. We still have to work at them. We still have trouble paying our bills. We have holes in our pockets like the rest of the nation does. Prices are going up and wages aren't. And things are getting worse and worse. Haggai said it would be that way. And he's speaking to the church. So here we have it that way. God is looking for 
a response from us where we begin to cry out to Him. And others look at us and say, where is their God? Oh, they went out there in the desert, yeah, those fools. Where is their God? Has God delivered them? No, they're just sitting out there in the desert. Aren't we in the same position? Yes, we are. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. So, even though things are difficult, we're here on this holy day to keep God's Sabbath. We come on His annual holy days to worship before Him. So we are doing the same thing that he said here needed to be done. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted in me? Hope you in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Now, Pharaoh didn't like what Moses was trying to do. And Israel kind of bought into it and thought, boy, this is going to be great. But then the, the more Moses pushed at Pharaoh, the more trouble they had. Can you begin to imagine what their thoughts about the leadership that God had supposedly provided were. You know, this Moses, he came to save us. And every time he goes and sees Pharaoh, we get worse. What were the plagues they went through? The first several. It just got worse. What about the early New Testament church? Power of God came on the day of Pentecost. Thousands were converted. Thousands were healed of all kinds of maladies, blindness, lameness, deafness, demonism. And then things got worse and worse. Persecution came from the Romans. Life got worse. They had a severe drought where they were all about to die of starvation, literally. And fruit had to be sent from other places to Jerusalem. And it finally got so bad that the apostles said, Look, everybody just bring everything you got. Let's pile it up right here. And we'll pass it out carefully and maybe everybody can live. So things got worse and worse for the New Testament church. And then it got so bad they started killing them. And then they killed all the leaders except John. Killed all their leaders. It just got worse and worse. And in that age, deliverance really didn't come. Although when the temple was destroyed, some fled to Pella so that they might survive. So there was at least a beginning or a show that God is able to save people out of that kind of thing. So it wasn't the end-time deliverance, but it served as an example that if you flee from the powers that be when the time comes, you can be preserved, just as in Exodus. Verse 6, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember you from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites and from the hill Mizar. So, from Mount Hermon and the Jordan River and so on, he said, I, I'm discouraged and frustrated, but I know you'll take care of me. 
Deep calls to deep at the noise of your water spouts. All your waves and your billows are gone over me. So it's like I've been battered by the waves. Yet, the Eternal will command His loving kindness in the daytime and in the night His song shall be with me and my prayer to God unto the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say daily to me, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope you in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So he said, even though things look bad, I know I'll be delivered. And that's the Exodus story. Things got really, really bad. And then they had the Passover and fled out of there with a high hand. And all were they joyous that God had delivered them from slavery. So there is hope, isn't there? Then and now. We are in oppression today and the oppression is getting worse. But we can look forward to a glorious day when God is going to look down and begin to deliver us. Now, there was a problem there. God began that deliverance. They crossed the Red Sea. He destroyed Egypt around them, even as He is about to destroy this entire nation around us and collapse the whole world economy and bring up a beast and false prophet to set up the own new, their own new world order under Satan's direction. Israel, the untrue woman, will be destroyed. The whore mother of Revelation 17 and 18 and of Ezekiel 16. Everything around us is going down. So they saw the whole Egyptian nation destroyed with those plagues. And it's about to happen here because we are a type of sin in this nation. And he will deliver us out of it. Now, what will our attitude be? Joyous, I'm sure. But will we avoid the problems that Israel had? You see, they wanted instant gratification. They wanted all their needs, their wants, their cares taken, of, taken care of right now. We are in a nation today where we have been trained by the culture around us, to get what we want when we want it. We have been taught a sense of entitlement, that we deserve whatever we want. Even the ads often use that very term, get what you deserve today. You deserve this. You are entitled to it. What makes you entitled to it? There are a lot of people on earth don't have it. Why do you get it? Now, we need to understand that what Israel did was seek instant gratification. Okay, we're across the Red Sea. We see the nation of Egypt destroyed before us. We want water. We want food. Take care of us right now. Not in your good time, God, but now. Give me what I want and give it to me now. 
Now, God would teach us what? That gratification is wrong? That having things that taste good, feel good, are wrong? No. There's nothing wrong with gratification. It's how we go about it. Now, he taught them what? And what has he taught throughout all the history of mankind? You've got to put another word in there in place of instant. Different adjective. Delayed. Delayed gratification. Now, when they sought instant gratification and felt entitled to it, or however they felt, and that they deserved it, and God was no good unless He provided it right now, what did He do? He took care of them, but He delayed their gratification. He had told Israel, you will be blessed and you will go into the promised land. But you people who want your way and you want it now are going to wander in the desert for 40 years until your carcasses all fall and your children will go in because of my promise to Abraham. So he was going to teach them patience. He was going to teach them to wait, to have faith which they did not have. And we face circumstances that are not always pleasant. And we can't have everything we want, can we? We are here for delayed gratification. Now let's look at it in terms of first the earth, we have those who tell us, and it's in the ads and the articles and the TV constantly, that we need a sustainable earth situation. That the earth cannot be sustained as it is. There are way too many people. The numbers need to be reduced by at least 90% so that human life can be sustained. So there are those who recognize that the earth as it is, and they are correct in this, but the earth cannot continue to sustain the number of people it has for any length of time. We're running out of fresh water. We're running out of a lot of things. So wars will occur and population will be reduced. And God is allowing Satan and man to do this, to set the stage of humility and meekness so that when those people come up in the second resurrection, they'll be ready to listen. So, God is allowing Satan to do his thing, but it's all going to turn for good for those people eventually. And most of the people on this earth are going to see their carcasses fall in the desert, if you will, and be raised up later, even as those carcasses that fell in that desert will come up in the great white throne judgment as well. But they had to learn some very hard lessons. So this earth as we see it, is obviously unsustainable, and God tells us Satan and man are going to be allowed to essentially destroy mankind off the face of the earth to the point that it will get out of hand in terms of human oversight to the place there would be nobody saved alive except for the elect. And God will intervene for the sake of those who will obey Him, and they are very few.
so that man does not completely destroy himself from off the face of the earth. So the present culture, the present way of living of mankind, and America is probably the worst of the bunch. Israel was set to be the leader and the example, and we have been that way and the wrong way. We will be destroyed first when this starts. So our way of life and our culture is unsustainable, as is that of the entire earth. Now you look at the church, and it also became unsustainable, didn't it? We wanted our way in this culture. We did not pay the price of putting God absolutely first in our lives in every way and treat each other as family and help each other become parts that all fit together no matter how diverse they might have been, as I said last week. So God spewed us out of His mouth. The church was unsustainable as it was. Now, I'll draw it down even further. We, in this little group, are also in an unsustainable situation. Do you realize that? Our little community here can only be sustained to a certain point, and it would die and go away. It's a very real danger. Why? What is unsustainable? We're out in the desert where you can kind of grow a garden, but you can't truly sustain life in a way that maybe, let's say, the Amish in Iowa or Ohio or somewhere can do because they have lots of rain and good soil and and the conditions are such that even without electricity and so on, they can sustain their way of life. They can go on generation after generation and have. We're not in that position. This area would not do that in the way that they are able to do it. So that's one dynamic. Another is that I see a lot of gray and balding heads around here. So even our physical lives are not sustainable beyond a certain point. And God has made it clear that when the former temple is destroyed, when the latter temple comes, there will be old men who saw the glory of the former and can compare it to the glory of the latter. So this is all happening with the life, within the lifetime of those who were called into worldwide and saw it at its best, which was probably in the late 50s, 60s, spiritually speaking anyway. Not the biggest, it got bigger, but it had lost a lot of its spiritual edge. But there will be men who saw it at its best, however you might frame that, and will be able to still be alive and see the latter temple once it is built and see that it is far greater in spiritual strength than that which came before. So it all happens within the lifetime of an old man. I'm beginning to see a lot of old men around in the church that were called in that generation under Herbert Armstrong. So that in itself is unsustainable. What about our young people? With the breakup of the church, it being unsustainable, we have a great number of young people here who have no one to date. They have no one to marry. Because God says you cannot marry outside the church. He says you cannot 
go through those first parts that lead to marriage, the dating, and so on. You're not to have fellowship with the world. Not to mix with the world. Now, how long is that sustainable? Not very long. Now, all of you would like God to just infuse us with a great number of young people so you'd have people to date and marry, and a big selection maybe. That may come. But He has asked you, both old, who are getting closer and closer to the grave day by day, and you who are getting closer and closer to old age, or old maiden, or <laughs> whatever, He has asked you to delay your gratification. Not have instant gratification. Now we've had a few marriages, but I counted up the other day, and there's about 13 right here on this property who are at least eligible for marriage, and there's really not anybody to marry. Well, there's nothing instant on the horizon. I didn't check the gate this morning, but I didn't see a whole flood of young people coming in here. You have been asked to delay for a time by the rules of God and His society. And I know it's not easy. Not easy at all. Frustrating, discouraging, difficult. But don't murmur. Don't complain. As I said last week, we have plenty to do to get the mind off self. As one person has put it in the past, I'm engaged. I'm engaged to Christ. And that is the relationship I'm working at building. And that's a full-time job. We're also engaged in building relationships with each other so that the family that God has called out fits well together. And that takes a lot of work. Because there are some you may fit together with pretty well and some that you just don't care for. How are you going to fix that? And yet God has told us we have to fix that. We have to fix it, one way or another. Because we have been called to be one body, unified and close. You don't have to be as close as one toe to the other, but you've got to be as close as a finger and a toe at least. And if the toe hurt, the finger hurts too. We are connected in a way that we cannot deny, nor avoid, nor ignore. So strengthen those areas where you do have relationships and find a way to build them where you don't have them. That's what God tells us we must do. So there's not much instant gratification, is there? There's work ahead. And if you think we're just sort of sitting in a holding pattern, no, we're not. We have a huge job just to meld ourselves together in unity in closeness and in brotherhood. He'll even say down here a little further, I may not get to it today, uh, just as Christ said, I'll, I'll skip ahead since I've got the thought, we'll hit it again, but in chapter 45, verse 10, 
Hearken, O daughter, and consider. Listen and think. Open your ear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. Put family relations outside the church aside. Leave father, mother, brother, sister, daughter, even husband, even wife, was Christ teaching, and come and follow me. And that's right back here in Psalm 45, before Christ ever preached it. That we are to put our church family ahead of our physical blood families, and Christ absolutely set the example for that. It was written of Him here, and He repeated it when they told Him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, they want to talk to you. And He said, no, they can wait. These are my brothers and sisters. Those who are listening to His teaching. The same is true today. It is only His church who are listening to His teachings. We must put our relationships with everyone right here ahead of unconverted family. As I said before, the Spirit is thicker than blood. Okay? The Spirit of God has to be thicker than blood. This is an, enor an enormous challenge that we face. And we must subjugate our feelings, our thoughts, our plans, our attitudes to what God wants of us. This is not an easy thing, but it's something God says. Our relationships with friends and families of the past and of the world are unsustainable. We have to build sustainable relationships with each other here. Something that will be sustained throughout eternity is what we have to be working on. So we have plenty to do in the interim between now and the time the physical danger comes and God makes a difference and protects us and blesses us. Now, we want that day. I have read to you, and you've read yourself in your Bibles, the incredible promises God makes to the end-time church and the work that must be done. I won't review all that at the moment, but I'll remind us of it. Physical healings, spiritual, mental healings, blessings that will come even as the Garden of Eden and a wall of protection around it and a covert from the heat out in the desert so that the climate improves. And everything is going to be beautiful. And you and I want it now. He's going to call a remnant of His church, 10% of what was, and gather them all together to build the latter temple, and there will be lots of potential mates there. Oh, we want that day to come. <clears throat> And we want it now. But God says, delay it until the time comes. Be faithful, be true, be obedient, and I will take care of your needs in due time. That chafes against us, doesn't it? 
because we want it now. And we think, oh, but I'll be too old to have children. I'll be too old for a family. I think this thing's going to go on for several years. And building the temple and building Jerusalem. There may be time for some of those things. Oh, you think you're too old? Do you ever hear that story about Abraham and Sarah? Maybe you're not as old as you think you are. Maybe if we obey God and trust Him and put Him ahead of instant gratification, we will have blessings beyond our dreams. And that is the lesson of history, and it is the lesson of the Bible in every age. You delay those things you think you want, put God first, and then He will take care of you. That is the story from Genesis to Revelation. And it's the story here in the Psalms. Why did David write all these songs, Psalms about my troubles, my trials, my difficulties? Why do my enemies say, where is your God? Because he was under dire, hard circumstances. Those in his own family were conspiring to kill him. They were sleeping with his wives and defiling them. He had troubles. And he created a lot of his own troubles. Just as do we. Where is your God? Well, he's not all that apparent yet. I haven't seen much happen right here on this property that men couldn't do. This isn't the first village that was ever built on earth, you know. It isn't even the first one that was built in the desert. When we got here, Kanab was here and St. George and Phoenix and Tucson and Las Vegas. and There's lots of places out in the desert where people have found a way to survive. So there's nothing here yet beyond spiritual understanding of why we're where we are and how we got here which you and I understand, but anyone else looking at it could say, where's God's hand in that? And I'd have to say, you're right. We didn't do anything that other people haven't done and couldn't do. But we have an understanding of God's purpose and what He is going to do. And that gives us hope if we will de delay our gratifications until He provides that's what he is calling upon us to do, even as he did David and others. Psalm 43. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Consider me. Aren't we in the middle of an ungodly nation here? Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Don't we have liars, cheats, and thieves all around us? For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why don't you turn your face back to me? As many of the scriptures say, he's turned it away, and we want it to turn back to us. Why go I mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Just as Egypt was in Exodus. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. <coughs> so he says, we're in, we're in trouble here. Send your light and your truth. It is the light of God's truth that makes us different than the rest of the world. 
The truth will set us free. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacles. Holy hill of Zion, to the tabernacles that he is going to build. We look forward to that. We could put a lot of scriptures with this verse 3 and see what God has in mind for us. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Yes, upon the harp will I praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So he says, I'm, I'm facing troubles here. My life is miserable. I, I have difficulties on every side. David could say that. Christ had that to say. We have it to say. And yet, he says, in spite of all this trouble, I will yet hope in God because he will deliver me. So we have to have that same attitude. In spite of our troubles, trials, tribulations, the things we want that we can't have right now, look and hope in God. That's the message. Chapter 44. We have heard with our ears, O God. We hear with our ears, but does it penetrate? Do we get it? We heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. What work you did in their days, in the times of old. We're reminded of that in the first chapter of Zechariah. Not, we're not to be like our fathers in the past who heard, but didn't heed. We're told the same thing in the New Testament. Not the hearers, but the doers. So he said, we've got this body of work. I've already been referring today, all the way back to Genesis and all of our fathers of the past and even the early New Testament church, about what they went through. So we have the story not only that David had in his past, but we have the David's story, and we have Christ in the New Testament church story, to add to that, to give us faith, confidence, and hope that God can and will deliver. He did give us a positive record, a list in Hebrews 11 that is not by any means complete, of people from the Old Testament that will be in the kingdom. And Christ even said that the apostles would rule over the twelve tribes of Israel in the kingdom as well. So we have a record of names even of those who will be first fruits, and Paul even referred to some of those himself that weren't apostles who would be there. So we have a body of work from here all the way back of things that we have heard about, we've read about right here. How you did drive out the heathen with your hand and planted them. How you did afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your countenance, because you had a favor to them. He backed the Jordan up when they went into the promised land. He knocked Jericho down just when they marched and shouted. Quite easy. Take a walk and yell and the walls fall down. That's pretty good. It wasn't their own might and strength. You know what? It isn't going to be ours either. We're weak. We're vulnerable. You know, right here where we are today, we're out in a little open valley and we're quite vulnerable except for God's protection. 
And until it's time to flee to the mountains of Judea, which will not be until after the temple is built, till Jerusalem is built, and the abomination is set up, that we will flee to the mountains. But he has to protect us out in the open. In the meantime, a wall of fire around us. Zechariah makes it very clear he's going to do that. We have a lot to worry about if God isn't there to protect us. Now, if he is, we don't have a problem, do we? Now, he says he will. Do we believe him? Well, I think we do. We wouldn't be here. We'd be crawling under a rock, under a mountain somewhere, saying, protect us, <laughs> like some are going to do. I want to be sure that God has a favor unto us, as it says here, that he counts us worthy. So we have to delay some things and put him first. Again, that's what it's all about. You are my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Now there's a prayer for you. We're spiritual Israel, spiritual Jacob, and we're asking favors. And as I've said many times, he tells us there in Isaiah, don't give him any rest until he does just that. Keep after him. Stay with him. Build that relationship. Let him hear our cry. Through you will we push down our enemies. Through your name will we tread them under that rise up against us. What does it say there at the end of Malachi? That the wicked will be ashes under our feet. And Malachi is an end-time prophecy. So this is about us too. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise your name forever. Stop to think about that. Selah. But you have cast off and put us to shame. The church has been cast off. It's a shameful situation we're in now. I, I cringe when somebody asks us, well, what happened? Where, where did you come from? Well, we were part of this church that just all fell apart. Now, that sounds real good. Oh, you're part of a church that fell apart. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Why don't you join ours? And go not forth with our armies. Is the church going forth with our armies now? Armed with the gospel of peace? No. God has just basically stuffed lead in our mouths, as he says he would do in Zechariah 5. So the church is pretty silent today. It's going to be heard once again, but not until the latter temple is built. And God provides the leadership to do that. It's silenced. Oh, some of them are trying to open their mouth and say something, but it's not getting anywhere. It's not having any effect. In God we boast all the day long and praise your name forever. Selah. But you've cast off and put us to shame. I read that. Verse 10. You make us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. You've given us like sheep appointed for meat, and have scattered us among the heathen. The church has been scattered around the world among the heathen being eaten up in many, many ways. You tell your people for nothing, or you sell your people for nothing, and do not increase your wealth by their price. God just fed us to the wolves, basically, didn't he? He didn't get anything out of it. He will before it's done, but he just gave us back into Satan's and the world's hands, 
as a church. The two evil birds, I think the Tkachas probably are meant there, set our base back in Babylon. And we've been turned over to it. Except a few that he's still working with. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. You make us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. Oh yeah, that worldwide church of God lasted a long time. All those prophecies Herbert Armstrong made, that didn't, that didn't come to pass. That was all a bunch of baloney. Who did they think they were? Well, stick around. Stick around. It isn't over yet. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you. So we've seen the church scattered, but there are a few who have not forgotten God. Neither have we dealt falsely in your covenant. We're still working at it. We're still learning more about it. We're trying to get in line with it. Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from your way. There are those who are going on just as worldwide was, and there are those who have not declined but are still working at being what they ought to be. And that was God's whole purpose in spewing us out, was to get us to heat up, to get after it more aggressively than what we were before. Though you have sore broken us in the place of dragons, Satan and the demons, Protestant world, the ungodly world, Though you have sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death. Ezekiel 5. We are dying of spiritual famine, sword, and pestilence. A lot of spiritual diseases in the church today. We're here to be healed. You know, we want healing from God. We think about it physically perhaps more than we do spiritually. But it's our spiritual healing that is the most important. And perhaps those physical healings will not begin to show up in a dramatic fashion until the spiritual healing has occurred. And we have to go to God for that spiritual healing. There are reasons God hasn't done what He's not done. And we doing it is important, like the sermonette concluded today. Do we not need to do more than we have in order for God to turn His face back to us? If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, to our idols, the things that we put ahead of God, whatever they might be, doesn't have to be a statue. Anything can come between us and God. It can be a computer. It can be a TV. It can be a sport. It can be entertaining ourselves in many, many ways. Anything that takes us from our time with God and our devotion and focus on Him doesn't mean computers and TVs are evil in and of themselves. Even if you're watching good stuff all the time, you're still not spending the time with God. So there might be a really good program on God's creation, but if it comes on in the time you really ought to be praying or reading His Word, it can become an idol too. doesn't mean the nature program's bad. It's just not good for you to watch it right then because you need to put God ahead of it. 
See what I mean? It can be an idol, even though it's not something that's bad. Uh, uh, idol just simply means anything that gets between you and God and your relationship. Shall not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He ponders our hearts. Yes, for your sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But God says, for his sake, all these things are happening to us. Because they are designed and allowed to turn us to him. It's the same thing with Job. Satan didn't go to God and say, I've noticed Job's pretty obedient, but I think I can turn him around. No, God saw Job, and God knew Job had some attitude adjustment that needed to occur. So he approached Satan and said, Satan, have you noticed Job? Well, yeah, I've seen him down there. I can fix that. So God egged him on. God sicked him on Job for his own purposes. He has sicked Satan and this world and its culture on us so that we might overcome it and put him first. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. That's our prayer. That's our plea. Hear us, O God. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Why are we still in this situation? Why don't we have all these blessings we read about in the prophecies? Those questions come to our minds, don't they? Why the delay? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaves to the earth. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. So even in all this, there's the complaint There is the bitterness, the frustration, but then there is the thought in the closing of this particular psalm, arise for our help. So it is a plea, and with it comes a positive outlook. To look forward in faith that if we do what we're supposed to, God will take care of us. It may not be instant gratification, But if we delay it and put him first, the gratification will come.